I'm just a Christian worker who lives somewhere else. Uh, Judith, because she can preach the gospel in Hindi, Cantonese, Mandarin, and English, can communicate God's word to over 3 billion people. When we moved to Budapest, I said to Jane, just think, Jane, this will be the third language we haven't learned. (laughs) And I'm spectacularly clumsy in um, technology, slides, PowerPoint. Uh, when I when I connect to Wi-Fi, it's, it's a form of moral victory, <laughs> and um, we're all unqualified in some way. You do what you can, but I just say that uh, not to play out the, the great tragedy, but to to say, uh, don't think you're unqualified. Don't think there's something you can't do. Don't don't ever hold back because you think, well, you know, I I just wouldn't be any good at that. You'd be good at something. And one of the two of the great paradigms in the history of this great missions church are the year that uh, Chubby and Marge Andrews spent in Kenya leaving a surgical practice and the year that Bob and Sandra Stanley spent in Turkey leaving their grandchildren at critical ages. That's something I struggle, struggle with. So just away with excuses. If you know the gospel, if you believe the gospel, if you trust the Lord, there's something you can do. Now, mainly I thought in terms of missionaries. I think you're, you're all committed to missions or you wouldn't be here. So I, I hope it's applicable um, to everybody here, what I'm about to say. When we realized that we would be moving overseas from the North Carolina coast in 1986, the first thing I did, I got in the car, I drove three hours to Wake Forest, North Carolina, and went into the library of the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I got out every copy of the Evangelical Missions Quarterly, which began publication in 1968. That was 1986. So I went through every copy for 18 years. I went through the table of contents, and I looked at every copy, and I was looking for one thing. Why do missionaries come back? Why do they give up? Why do they quit? Because before I left, I wanted to understand why people came back. I had heard this rumor, but I I hoped it was a rumor. But I found it confirmed. Not cultural adjustment, not homesickness, not health, not politics, not money, not lack of support. Number one reason. Failure to get along with colleagues. Now, if you were here last night, the text we studied was something at one level very discouraging. What we're going to look at just briefly, because I was only given 15 minutes, what we're going to look at this morning at one level is terribly discouraging. But at another level, it's wonderfully affirmative. It's one of the greatest reasons to stay in the fight. I'm not going to have you stand up I read the text. I'm just going to say that in Acts 15, two spectacular things happen. One positive, one negative. Acts 15, as most of you know, is the Council of Jerusalem, where the gospel is clarified. In the early church, there was 
consensus was arrived with great difficulty over questions like, does a Gentile have to become a Jew to become a Christian? How much of the Old Testament scripture do we hold on to? Uh, What features of Torah are obligatory on a Gentile believer? How far, and that's theological, how far practically do we have to go in bending over backwards not to offend the sensibilities of Jewish believers who've become Christians? That's one of the things sorted out in Acts 15. And the Grace Party, the Pauline Party, triumphed blessedly through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. By the way, these questions are still current in the church today. The pastor of the largest Southern Baptist church has essentially said, well, you know, we didn't go far enough. We really kind of need to throw the Old Testament overboard because it keeps people from becoming Christians. Who can explain the slaughter of the Canaanites, by the way? It can actually be explained if if you've got about an hour and a half. And uh, just, I won't name his name. He pastors the eighth largest church in America. Some people, you know, I'm talking about. This coming week, two Wheaton College professors are publishing a book saying that it's, we can't establish any standard of morality from the Old Testament. That's a mistake. It's not what the Old Testament is for. That's not even what the Old Testament was for in the Old Testament, they plead. And what they're getting at is, Let's don't condemn this business of homosexual behavior. There's no real biblical grounds to condemn it. That's where they're going. So these are still live issues. But here's the thing. The church came together in Acts 15 to resolve the theology of Old Testament versus New Testament obligations. But although the the large strategic question was resolved, the small personal tactical question was left at an impasse. Namely, is John Mark going to go on the second missionary journey? Paul said no. Barnabas said yes. Now, John Mark quit on the first missionary journey in Acts 13. But he was a relative of Barnabas, whose name was Son of Encouragement. Paul says he can't go. Barnabas said he can't go. And I can just hear them. I can just hear Barnabas. Yeah, you preach a good game of grace, but you got a little problem practicing it, don't you? And Paul says, look, I don't hate him. I don't say he can never go, but he can't go this time. Actions have consequences. And there's a consequence of the fact that he quit on the first journey. He doesn't get to go on the second journey. Maybe the third, maybe the fourth, but not the second. And they disagree. Uh, People can't be objective when it comes to their family. Uh, In 1750, the greatest man ever to stand in a North American pulpit was fired from his church. He wasn't just fired. He was fired by a vote of 10 to 1. His preaching had ignited, along with Whitfield's preaching, the first great awakening in the American colonies. He was a man of enormous intellect and deep piety. His name was Jonathan Edwards. But you know what? He made a decision that affected the families, and they fired him. He came under the conviction that the Lord's table was for believers, and his grandfather, who started the church, believed that 
Communion was a converting ordinance, and anybody should take communion, and maybe they'll be converted. So you can imagine what happened. One Sunday, the 8-year-old and the 11-year-old are taking communion. The next Sunday, they're not. Daddy, Daddy, why can't? Why not? What was the solution? Fire the preacher by a vote of 10 to 1. Barnabas could not be objective. I will say this. Many, many fine Bible teachers say we know Barnabas was right because later, later John Mark was invited by Paul, was necessary for Paul. I say no, 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 no. Paul was right. I don't have time to defend that. I could defend it if I'd been given 30 minutes. But I will say this. The reason John Mark was valuable later was because Paul disciplined him early. That's my contention. I just want to say this as my time is fleeting. I, I mentioned to you that at one level, what we studied last night and what I've mentioned this morning is an encouraging thing. Why is that? If I read the New Testament and I found that there wasn't carnality in Corinth, that Yodi and Syntyche never had a hard time getting along in Philippi, that there was no friction between the Palestinian and Hellenistic widows in Acts 6, that there was no rift, no stupefying rift that made them split up between Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15, Barnabas going on to Cyprus with John Mark, Paul going on first to Asia Minor and then Macedonia with Silas. If I couldn't find those difficulties, those defeats, those tensions, those regrettable realities among the people whom God was using, I would have given up long ago. I would say, you know, when God has his hand on somebody, they don't have any problems. They don't have any difficulties. I got nothing but problems. God couldn't possibly have his hand on me. But when I see the difficulties they faced, I say, hallelujah, hallelujah. I got difficulties too. And if God had his hand on them, maybe, just maybe, please God, he has his hand on me. Now listen, God does everything for us. Jesus does everything for us. But he doesn't do it all at once. Finally, everything will be resolved. In the interim, as Judith said, there's pain. We don't know why the pain is necessary. The great mantra which Helen Roosevelt, the greatest speaker I've ever heard in my life, I know she's female, I'm just being honest, the greatest speaker I've ever heard in my life, all categories, when she was being raped, I don't know her personal life. I would imagine that's the only intimacy ever, she ever knew with a man because she never married. While she was being raped, the prayer God gave her was, Lord, I thank you for trusting me with this experience, even though you haven't chosen to show me the reason why. Well, one day he'll show us the reason why. God is, does all things well. He is the blessed controller of all things. But we don't always know why this particular thing is happening. One day we will know. One day we'll see him. One day, God willing, we'll hear 
the well done. Now, just, just for those of you who just, you're just Christians, you don't get paid to do what all Christians are supposed to do like I do. You're just trying to please the Lord. You're trying to beat your brains out to make a living. You're just trying to go to church. Sometimes you even go to church on Friday night. Sometimes you even go to church on Saturday morning. That's how much you love Jesus. That's, that's how much you care. Listen, I run into people who stop going to church because somebody hurt their feelings, because there was an unresolved disagreement. Don't you see what a great apologetic this is? Don't you see how it proves that the Bible is true? Do you think if the gospel writers were just trying to uh, sell some fable and foist it onto the naive, do you think they would have reported that Jesus got run out of his own synagogue? They tried to kill him? Do you think they would have reported the cry of dereliction? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 99% of everybody, 100% of the theologically uninformed, don't know what that means. They think, my gosh, the thing didn't work. My gosh, he gave up. That's what Albert Schweitzer concluded. And he was a theologian. Why on earth would they put something like that so bound to cause disunderstanding, so bound to diminish faith? Because that's what happened. Because that's what he said. They weren't trying to foist a fable onto the gullible. They were telling us what happened, what really happened. If I couldn't see in real life exactly what the New Testament says, I would have said, I would conclude, well, it must not be true. But it is true. There are, there are problems. People hurt us. They disappoint us. They betray us. Even people in the church, just like the Bible says, just like the Bible says, what I'm about to say, I don't want to shock you. I say this reverently. I, say, I don't say it profanely. I say it worshipfully. But when somebody tells me they've given up on the Lord because some carnal person like me offended them somewhere along the line in 50 years of going to the church, I think, good God, man. Good God. I don't say that profanely. Good God. You mean you let a sinner like me turn you away from the worship of the one true God? What's the matter with you? Don't you get it? I didn't die for you on the cross. What say you to the five wounds? Two in the hands, two in the feet, one in the side. Don't you think we're going to sin? Don't you think we're going to fail? Don't you think we're going to blow it? Is that any reason not to bow before this King Jesus who yielded up his life, an atonement for our sin? No reason to quit ministry. No reason to give up on worship or the local church. This was the apostolic experience. One day, one day, there'll be a resolution. One day, we'll be taken to that place where the redeemed of all ages converged. And we won't be able to sin. I'll be unrecognizable. But I'll see you there too. Amen.